0: Listen, okay, last year Apple lost one billion dollars. I don't even know how that's possible. You were less than ninety days from being insolvent. I had three different accountants try to explain it to me. The whole place has to be streamlined. Start with two of the accountants. I started with the Apple come off stage? We're gonna go back to stake for a moment. I started with the Apple II team because we don't, you know, make that anymore. Just acknowledge the top guys. Have a mimosa and relax.
1: You will not blow me off right now, Steve. The top
0: guys There are deserve- no
1: top guys,
0: all right? On the Apple II team, there are no top guys. They're B players, and B players discourage the A players. And I want A players at Apple and not Dell. They're not B
1: players, and I'm a better Less judge than that. Less than
0: 90 days from insolvency. In part, because somebody thought the Newton wasn't a box of garbage. Yo. Would you come off Leave of the Leave him. I'm talking you about... You guys designed and shipped a little box of garbage while I was I'm gone. I'm talking about the Apple II,
1: which is not just a crucial part of this company's history. It is a crucial part of the history of personal computing. For a time. The least you can do if you're going to downsize these people. They're going to
0: live in the biggest houses of anyone on the unemployment is to luck. acknowledge them acknowledge them and the Apple II during this launch. This is a new animal. This
1: whole place was built by the Apple II. You were built by the Apple II. As a matter
0: of fact, I was destroyed by the Apple II and its open system so that hackers and hobbyists could build ham radios or something. And then it nearly destroyed Apple when you spent all your money on it and developed a grand total of no new products. The Newton? The little box of garbage. You guys came up with the Newton and like want people to know that. This is a product launch, not a luncheon. And the last thing I want to do is connect the iMac to the... To the go- only successful product that this company has ever made. I'm sorry
1: to be blunt, but that happens to be the truth. The Lisa was a failure. The Macintosh was a failure. I don't like talking like this. But I am tired of being Ringo when I know I was John. Everybody loves Ringo. And I'm tired
0: of being patronized by you. You think John became John by winning a raffle, Was You think he tricked somebody or hit George Harrison over the head? He was John because he was John. He was John because he wrote Ticket to Ride. And I wrote the Apple too.
2: Everybody, I don't want to Nobody up moves!
0: You made a beautiful board, which, by the way, you're willing to give out for free, so don't tell me how you built Apple. If it weren't for me, you'd be the easiest day at Homestead High These School. These people...
1: Live and die by your praise. So here's your chance. Acknowledge that something good happened that you weren't in the
0: room for. No. Steve, do it. It's right.
1: It's... It's right. Sorry, but no. Let me put it another way. I don't think there's a man who's done more to advance the democratization that comes with personal
0: computing than I have, but you've never had any respect for me. Now, why is that? I'd at least consider the possibility that's because you've never had any for me.
2: Was that song about you, Kenny?
0: It's about you, Chad. It was about
2: you I think it's about Albert. Well it's a catchy song about a pretty uh, intense topic. This morning in Self-Portrait, we're talking about vanity and pride. And there's something about vanity and pride. It is easy to see in other people. Oh my goodness. But it's very hard to see in yourself. And today I want to talk about why we should avoid pride. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, there's no list of the seven deadly sins anywhere in the Bible. That was a fourth century monk came up with that list. But there is a list of seven things God hates in the book of Proverbs. And pride makes the list twice. A proud heart and haughty eyes. Now why would God hate pride? Well, it's because pride destroys your soul. Maybe you know the Oscar Wilde book, or the movie even based on the book, about Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray was a young man. He was in his prime, and, and, and he was attractive and he was powerful. In fact, he was so attractive that a young artist in the community named Basil said, Could I paint your portrait? And he painted his portrait. Beautiful picture capturing the youth of Dorian Gray. And as he painted the portrait, Dorian Gray suddenly was sad, even angry angry that the portrait would remain young, but as he got older, he would carry the weight and the burden of age. Yeah, Dorian, that's how paintings work. So he decided to make a deal, and he sold his soul and allowed his soul to be captured in the painting, that the painting would carry the weight of everything he did, and it would age on his behalf, and he would stay young forever. And because of that... He realized that life was about pleasure, about youthfulness, about everything revolving around himself. So he locked the painting upstairs. He locked that painting where no one would see it again, and he began to live a life of self-centeredness, using women, using relationships. His girlfriend, who was an actor, he just reamed her out for not doing a very good job, and said, "You should go basically go kill yourself." And she committed suicide because of his just anger tirades. He began to indulge in everything that would bring him happiness, even if it hurt others. Anger and self-centeredness and betrayal and jealousy and and drugs and alcohol and, and, and no committal relationships. And as he returned to his house, he went upstairs where he'd locked up the portrait. And he found that when he unveiled the portrait, it had changed. The portrait, the image of his soul had been distorted by his actions that he could not disconnect what he was doing from the condition of his soul. And he was so angry at the condition of his soul that he took a knife and he killed. He found the artist and killed the artist. And then decided he would take out the image and portrait itself. Took a knife and he stabbed the portrait. And as he killed the portrait, at the end of the book, he falls over dead. Now, if you know anything about Oscar Wilde, the author, he was a hedonist who lived his life for himself, fasting that he would write a book about a man, Dorian Gray, who would try and disconnect his actions from his soul and discover the two were uniquely connected. The reason God takes pride so seriously is because pride will distort your soul in a way that very few other things will. So one of the reasons we should avoid it is because it destroys your soul. The second reason is because God takes it very seriously. So I want to tell you the account today and some real practical implications we'll get to in a moment about pride. But God takes it very seriously. And no portrait probably portrays pride in the Bible more seriously than the Tower of Babel. If you don't know the story, it goes like this. Now the whole earth was one language and one speech. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The flood has just occurred with Noah. This occurs after that. God tells people to, to, to scatter out and to enjoy the new creation. But instead, a small group of people enslaved the people around them to help build a, a tower to themselves... And God comes down as is trying to rescue the people in slavery from the tyrants who are using them to build a name for themselves. That said, let us go down and let us confuse their languages so that this group of people exploiting the others will not be able to get the workforce to work and then people will be free. Now, if you've heard this account before, maybe like, yeah, Chad, this is exactly why I don't believe the Bible. I mean you really believe that God showed up and invented all the languages we have today? Well, if you struggle with that question, there are many even Jewish scholars who think that the Tower of Babel is is an analogy or an illustration, not really a historic event, about how mankind wants to build his own empire and rebel against God. They see it as a figurative and analogy, not a historic event. Now, I happen to think it's a historic event. Let me give you some, some hints. And this, this might be a little nerdy for a second, so I promise it'll be short. But here are just some indications from linguists and from those who studied language that what the Bible communicates here, that different languages had to be invented simultaneously in order to develop into what we have today, there's a lot of credence for that. It'll just be a moment, then we'll get back to some practical teaching on pride. One of the aspects of of pride you're going to see or of of language development is that even evolutionary atheistic linguists have said, as they've studied language, Bernard Renshaw says, there must have been an evolution that must have had a point of origin. We do not know at what stage of human descent language originated as we studied it, but it had to have a point of origin. So at some point language had to start. Second thing, there's sort of the woof-woof theory. The wolf-wolf theory is that there's cavemen, grunt, 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 wolf, 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 the animals wolfed in, and then eventually that slowly modified itself into human language. But the woof wolf theory has proven to be untestable and proven to, that hypothesis has just fallen apart. So much so that uh, this linguist, uh, Helmut Gibber, said, human language is a, is a first place, a knowledge medium, The essence of speech lies in the possibility of assigning specific meanings to articulated sounds, thereby making them mentally accessible. And he's basically proven that gradually the animal grunt-woof-woof theory just has not proven itself to be true. You couldn't get from grunts to complex knowledge, even given a million years. Something intelligent had to invent intelligent communication. Another linguist studying with a chimpanzee said, As much as we have studied communication, and animals certainly communicate, there is a huge gap between what animals do and the knowledge base of what happens that human beings do. And look what he says here. He says, The ape experiments confirm re- that real speech exists nowhere in the animal world. So there's something different between humankind and animal kind to develop communication or speech. So, another linguist said, well, maybe it's genetic. If all languages developed from one language, there would be similarities as they developed, if it all came from one. This is the genetic take on the evolution of language. But this linguist said something interesting. The ultimate question is whether all human languages are genetically related. Do they come from one place and just develop into what we have? There are few words which, he says, are similar in all languages. However, the words he gives in his example do not have the same meaning in every language. The meanings vary from one to finger to hand. There are similarities between them, but this is not convincing evidence of genetic relationship between language families. I know we're getting nerdy. We're almost done. He's saying, if language developed from one place, not multiple languages developing from different places, they would all have similarities. The the word hand would mean hand in lots of different places. That's not what we see. It's almost like different languages develop totally independent of one another, as if there were multiple strings that occurred simultaneously to develop totally separate language, which is very consistent with what the Bible says happens here at Babel. Complex human knowledge language develops simultaneously. A couple of little fun hints. If you speak Chinese, I don't, but interesting, if you read Chinese, some of the letters in Chinese have embedded in them some of the remnants of what the Bible says occurred. Take the word to create, for example. The word to create in Chinese comes from several words which means speak to the dust or the mud so that life can walk. That's where we get the word to create. Well, that's exactly the concept that's in Genesis. God spoke to the dust and brought life and it walked. And that's where the Chinese symbol for create came from. Here's another, garden. Garter comes from the symbols dust, breathe, two in an enclosure of a garden. The two people were in a garden... And God spoke or breathed into the dust. And that's where we get the word garden. Here's another one. word boat comes from vessel, eight, and people. Which is what Genesis says occurred. Eight people got onto a boat in a worldwide flood. So there at least seems to be hints here in the Chinese language that at least it was an understanding of or not impact of what had happened in the Bible. If not, it proves some validity to perhaps this really happened. I'll give you a couple more. Uh, to covet or to desire. Two trees, women, to covet or desire, which is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Forbidden or to warn. Two trees on the top, God underneath. The Chinese word for alone is a person times two, walking with the dust. If you know the account in Genesis, it says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a second person to walk with him. One last occurrence and then we'll get rid of the nerdy stuff. In the Bible, right before the Tower of Babel, it says that there was a worldwide flood. And there's several different specific details given to that worldwide flood. And yet we have flood legends all over the world. Every different culture, from Babylon to Egypt, all across the board you'll see at the top, India, Russia. And yet in those stories, they all give different pieces that there was once in the past a type of major cataclysmic event that affected and has been passed through their culture. So it certainly seems to indicate that all these different cultures from all different times had a common story, maybe even historic story. Now, whether you believe this really happened or not, I believe it did. There are some really powerful implications as to how you and I can avoid pride and why we should. Yes, God takes it seriously. Yes, it destroys our soul. But how do we deal with it? Well, pride, number one, it's a tower we build inside of ourselves so other people look up to us and secondly it's a portrait we paint to make ourselves look better than we really are i mean it's the image we give forth to other people L- look at me it's a facebook post page right we-, we were on vacation this last week and a few little squirmishes going on and we're looking at our facebook page and my mom turned to me and she said if you looked at our facebook page you would think we're always happy all the time yep it's an image we create or paint To make ourselves look better than we are. So I want to give you two questions. Two questions to dig into your own heart. To find this undetectable almost problem of pride. The first one comes from the tower. The tower. Am I primarily motivated to make a name for myself? The problem with the Tower of Babel is not that they're building. God's a big fan of building and developing and and gardening or or taking resources and turning it into something. God actually commanded people to do that. The issue here is that the small group of people were enslaving other people because it was driven by what the Bible says here in the next passage, to make a name for themselves. It wasn't about serving other people was about building a city so people could have rooms and people could provide for their families and care. No, it was all about making a name for themselves. That was the driver. That was what pushed them. That's what motivated them. And I'm often embarrassed to find out how often when you really pull back the layers of why I do what I do and you look underneath the, the justification and the, and the modifications, you go wow, there's a lot of me. A lot of me motivating this thing. That story made me look good. I chose that activity over this activity because I would get credit from it. Now, in archaeology, these are called ziggurats. And we actually have found evidence of these gigantic buildings all over the the ancient world. There's one found in the Middle East, a ziggurat of Ur that is in modern-day Iraq. And covered in the 1920s, and in 2005 it was used as a uh, Air Force base when we went in to uh, put our, our, uh, our men in Iraq, a station there. Now, I don't know that this is the specific one that's referenced here in the Tower of Babel, but there is archaeological evidence to show building these towers to the sky very much happened in the ancient world. But let's ask ourselves... That same truism we just heard about, making a name for ourselves how much of that saturates you and I? Because there's so many different flavors of ways that we try and make a name for ourselves. One of it's competitiveness, right? Competitiveness is a good thing until it becomes the only thing, right? We, We love being competitive, we love winning, but we've all been on teams, our kids have been on teams, our grandkids have been on teams, where there was one kid who was so competitive he became the ball hog. And because he so wanted to score all the goals himself, he didn't pass to the people that were open. And his competitiveness, his need to make a name for himself or herself, is why they lost the game. And competitiveness, mixed with it's all about me, makes you less competitive. Here's a definition of pride I've been wrestling with. I was very convicted actually this week, so I thought about this. Pride takes something good like ambition or competitiveness... And twists it. Here's a quick definition of pride. I did it, and therefore I'm do it. I worked harder, I worked smarter, I worked better, and therefore I deserve it. Now there's some truth in that. It's a sense of owedness. God owes me, life owes me, th- this family owes me, this community owes me. And you've got to listen real carefully to hear the voice in you. No, no, that's not me. Oh, I know people like that. I know lots of people like that, but not me. Then there's another version of owedness. I did it, and I'm owed it. And that is the suffering version. Because of all the great things I've done, I deserve a better life, I deserve better circumstance, I deserve not to put up with this, I deserve not to put up with that, I deserve not to put up with somebody who treats me this way. The suffering version is because life has treated me poorly, I've put up with so much, I've endured so much, I've gone up with so much heartache. That I'm angry at God and I'm angry at life because God owes me for putting up with so much. Sure, there's people who are worse off than me. Sure, sure, sure. But there's a whole lot of people better than me or in better situations than me or don't have to deal with this health crisis or deal with this trouble or deal with this rebellious child. I am owed. I was thinking about just the challenges we've had with Mr. Quinn, the challenge we've had with my wife for this last seven months with her back and the anger toward God I felt. And the anger toward life I felt. And I felt very justified in it. I could build a, a pretty good case for my, my justification. I felt like I was sitting out by the hot tub. Mr. Quinn was sitting in the hot tub. And I was sort of looking over my notes. And I went, oh my goodness, God, I'm arrogant. I feel like you owe me. And that's why I'm so angry. And I just had this great moment by the hot of apologizing for my arrogance, my pride. Competitiveness can be a good thing until it becomes odeness, because it's all about you. There's a uh, account, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, Coach uh, Belichick... I was meeting with the Patriots, and they were down. And they were down pretty bad at halftime. And they were not going to make it to the Super Bowl this year. And, and he got his team together, and he's trying to figure out how to rally the team. And there's a verse in the Bible that says a pride comes before destruction. I'm not sure he references but he talked about that concept that day in the locker room. Guys, gather together. Let me tell you what's going on with the Steelers right now. The Steelers are in their locker room. And I've heard, I won't tell you how, but I heard that right now their coach is saying they've already won this. They are already celebrating like they've beaten us. In their mind, they're already going to the Super Bowl. Are you going to put up with this? Are you about people who think they've already beat us when half the game's gone? Half the game's still left to play? And that rally cry for the Patriots, I can't believe people would be so arrogant that even though they're up by a lot, that they would think they're going to beat us. And they came back and won that ended up in the Super Bowl that year. Why? Because arrogance, even a good thing like competitiveness, blinds you to doing your best, when it becomes about you, not what's best. It's the old ball hog type thing you see in the team. Second thing, my cynicism can be uh, a way that I try and make name for myself. I'm not going to care too much because I don't want to be fooled. I'm just cynical. This is harder to see, this version of pride. I'll give you an example. I, had a, a, I was in an apartment when I first got married 22. My wife and I moved into our first apartment. and I'm laying in bed one morning and I get a phone call. Ring, ring. Back when phones were actually on the wall. Oh, I get it. Ring, ring, ring. It's about seven in the morning or something. I go up and I grab the phone. Hello? It's one of the students in the student ministry. I was youth pastor. Chad, J- are you okay? Who is this? It's Joseph. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. What do you mean am I okay? What are you calling for? It's seven in the morning. Are, are you on fire? No, Joseph, I am not on fire. Well, right now, your, your apartment building's on fire. Right. Listen, I've had students call and play practical jokes on me, but I'm a little too clever. I've been around the block a few too many times to have some student call up with the old, your apartment's
1: on fire routine.
2: I don't think so. Thank you, Joseph, for the call. I think I would know if the apartment was on fire. Chad, seriously. Really? Really? I'm not going to be the kind of guy who's fooled, which is, again, an interesting version of pride. I'm not going to check it out. You know, I'll walk over to the door. I get this long cord, you know. Walk over to the back door, open the screen door.
0: <whistles>
2: I mean, it was there were fire trucks everywhere. I was in an apartment that was on fire, and I was sleeping through it. But because I didn't want to be fooled... My cynicism, make a name for myself, is not a fooled one. I almost didn't check it out. It's a form of pride. So it's not just competitiveness, not just cynicism. Well, there's other versions of pride. Let me give you the next one. Next one is uh, not just cynicism, but oh, overconfidence. Because sometimes confidence again, a good thing. becomes not just I'm confident that God has made me, given me gifts and skills to do something, thing, but it becomes all about me. I mean, do you think... Do you think your life would be a little bit different if you were born in the 14th century when the bubonic peg- plague was in vogue? Yes, you've got gifts and talents, but you were born in a particular history. That's a gift. Life is a gift. And when you think, yes, I've developed some skills, yes, I've, I've built a great company, yes, 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 but you don't realize so much of that came from being gifted life and gifted talents. The confidence becomes about making a name for yourself, not those who've given you the confidence. We had a guy in the green room several years ago who pulled one of our elders aside and said, i got to tell you, there with his wife, I've really gotten serious about God recently and it has changed me in a good way and changed our marriage. My of our elders said, well, tell me about that. What's the biggest thing you've learned from the Bible, church, or Jesus over the last couple of years? Well, probably the biggest thing I've learned is it's not all about me and as he was talking his wife's behind him going <laughs> she said it, it, our marriage has been so much better simply by that simple truth that confidence turned into arrogance it's not just that too it's 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 also credit the need for credit the need for credit becomes the i'm due i'm due i'm due you didn't did you see that you didn't mention it you didn't see that you see what i'm due i'm due and again getting what you're worth is a good thing knowing what you deserve and, and making sure that there's legal protection set, so that's all good stuff but when your life is primarily solely referenced on making a name for yourself it's all but I'm, I'm owed i'm owed i'm owed i'm owed i'm owed it will destroy your soul Which is why C.S. Lewis says that proud people rarely see God. And why do proud people rarely see God? Because they're always looking down and never looking up. So pride is a tower we build so others will look up to us. It's also an image we paint. It's a a reputation we make up. But then that, that reputation you make up is something you have to live up to. So we all love the idea of a good reputation. Who wouldn't want that? For their company, for their family, for for their life. But then we can't live up to what we've made up. Do you feel the pressure? The pressure to live up to the reputation and image you've made up. Do you have any places you can be real about your struggles, about your temptations, About the disequilibrium between who you want to be and who you really are? What drives that disconnect? Well, I think it hints at it here in the text. It says that they were fearful they would be scattered. It wasn't just about making a name for themselves. What was driving that was fear. Fear. And most proud people are fearful, insecure people. I gotta tell people how important I am because it's not self-evident. Insecure people are braggadocious. They gotta tell you how important they are, because otherwise how would you know? It's fear of not being known. It's fear of failure, so they don't risk. They don't listen to other people in their company they don't listen to people on the team the reason you have trouble taking feedback is you fear looking foolish you fear people not realizing how 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 important you are how credible you are and so you think by pretending you know it all you're going to get more credibility versus saying i'm not sure let me check do you know anything i don't know proud people limit their own growth because they don't have access to more information Humble people can continue to grow because like, I don't know, tell me, I'm open to that. They're open to feedback. They're open to being wrong. They're not fearful of being foolish. They're not fearful of being wrong. They're not fearful of looking bad because they don't have this, they don't have this huge tension of trying to live up to what they've made up They say, you know, this is what I'm trying to be, but I'm not there yet. And I'm not scared to tell you I'm not there yet. I'm not scared to tell you that I've messed up, but I'm on this journey And I'm not controlled by the fear of people finding out I'm not everything I pretend to be. Dave Anderson, leadership expert guru consultant, and he he speaks about how this issue affects managers. He said this, there are many reasons managers fail. For some, the organization outgrows them. Others don't change with the times. Some spread themselves too thin and work long and hard but not smart. Many abandon the priorities and disciplines that once made them great and never get back to them. A few make poor character choices. But all these causes for management failure have their root in one common cause. Pride. In the simplest terms, pride is devastating. I'm not talking about the pride one has in your own work, your own accomplishments. I'm talking about the pride that inflates your sense of self-worth and distorts self Your perspective of reality. You don't see yourself accurately because you're not open to feedback. You don't see the the situation accurately because you know better than everybody else. You don't hear from your team because you know better than at least most of them. And the reputation of being the know-it-all, whether you can say that or, or see that in yourself or not, you then got to live up to what you've made up. I know it all. I've got it all figured out. And it limits the team. It limits yourself. And it distorts reality. If you pull out a $10 bill, you'd recognize Alexander Hamilton, who should have been known for a lot of things. He should have been known as the youngest Press secretary, not press secretary, let me get it right. At age 22, he was George Washington's chief of staff. At 22! He was a Revolutionary War hero. He was America's first secretary of treasury. He co authored the Federalist Papers and he created the Coast Guard. And that's just a short list of what this guy did. But you know what? What do we all know about him? He couldn't take an insult had to protect his ego, and had the famous duel. You insult me. I bite my thumb at you, sir. No, I bite my thumb at you. No, that was from Shakespeare. but <laughs> Same idea, right? Same idea. You insult me, grab the gun. Turn. <coughs> and he died in his 50s. And he could have been known for so many things, so many incredible legacies that we still benefit from today. But what he is known for is a man who is so obsessed with his reputation that he died for it. And that's what makes the God of the Bible so unique. The God of the Bible is willing to risk his reputation to save you and I from losing ourselves to our reputation. God is not too concerned about His reputation. He risks it all the time. The message of the Bible is that God who lived in perfect paradise where things were great and things were fantastic and things were peaceful risked it all for us. He came to earth and the all powerful God suddenly appeared in a little bitty, tiny living space called a baby. It's about risking your reputation. You're talk about taking off all the glamour baby and he allowed himself to be born not into the family of kings but into a family of of impoverished people who could only offer a a meager sacrifice at temple more than that he lived a very common life in a very common place and then he allowed himself Philippians tells us and the gospels to be crucified and anyone hung on a tree the bible said was cursed by God The Romans felt that way, the Greeks felt that way, the Jews felt that way. God allowed himself to be cursed and take of no reputation. Why is he doing this? To try and save you and I, who are so obsessed with our reputations. And he knows that if you make your reputation your only thing, You put your whole identity in the portrait of who you see yourself to be, how famous you are, how liked you are, what you're known for. If this becomes the essence, not not a part of your life, not a part you prefer, it becomes who you are, your reputation, you will lose yourself and distort yourself because you will live for self. And you will not be able to be honest. You will not be able to be safe. You won't be able to be real. And God laid it all on the line. And God does it all the time. He allows His motivations and His reasoning and His actions to be questioned all the time. Why does He explain Himself? Because God's not too worried about His reputation. And He's willing to take flack on His reputation even to the point of being on a cross if it rescues you and I from finding our identity in our reputations. Look what happens again in the text. God looks down at mankind building up their whole life on self, making a name, making a name, making a name, me, 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 us, 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 fear, 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 fear. And God says, if we don't step in, there's nothing we're to be able to accomplish that's not going to create havoc in the world I've just renewed. So God has an interesting use of the plural here. God says, let us go down. It's one of the verses of the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. Let us go down. So God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go down. They see this distorting building of pride. And they say, let's confuse the languages of all the earth. Which immediately sets God up. How could a good God have done this? How could God care make it like kennel or talk to my neighbor? How could a good God... What, what was God thinking when he did this? And God's reputation is on the line. God opens himself up to accusations. He opens himself up to misunderstanding. He opens himself up to brokenness, right? That's what he's doing here. And yet, as he opens himself up to all of this, he wants to rescue the people who've built their whole life on their reputation. People often wonder, you know, there's so many priests and televangelists and pastors who are caught in affairs, and then the whole church, people reject Christianity because of that. Certainly, conversations I have with folks, people are are so frustrated by the hypocrisy of the church, and it's understandably so, they reject Jesus and they reject God. Why would God not fix these people before they get into this trouble? There's a really powerful verse in the Bible that says, God gives the proud heart over to the adulterous woman. What? God is so concerned about the cancer of pride that he will allow you to publicly humiliate yourself because your pride will lead to, ah, I don't have to put up with my wife who doesn't encourage me enough or my husband who doesn't respect me enough. I'm going to go get my needs because it's all about me. But God will give you over to humiliation in order to expose the real source of what's been driving that, your cancerous pride. I sat down with two friends recently one was having an affair and one was spouses having an affair and I said are you open to the possibility that the worst thing you've done is not the affair the affair is exposing the worst thing you've ever done this person says, what do you mean I said the affair is bad but it actually suggests there's something so broken in you that you think the world's here to serve you, that you can objectify people, that you can take whatever you want. And that cancer in you is distorting your soul. And God allowed this humiliating thing to happen. He's like, I've never felt so humiliated. I know. That's what happens. If you're not humble, God will humble you. Those are your choices in life. Be humble, or be humbled. Song to know spouse was wrestling with reconciliation and, and moving in that direction. I said, "Are you open to the possibility that the arrogance in your spouse it took this kind of humiliation, as painful and as hurtful? And I don't wish this on anyone, but it took that level of intervention to get to the pride." I said, "Do you think the things that are beginning to form, beginning to come out, the repentance and the changes in your spouse's life would have happened if there had not been this level of humiliation?" I said, "No." No, there's great things happening that would not have come out. I don't wish this on anyone, but I can see how God put this humiliation in order to fix what was really broken. Tim T. Keller tells a story of a man who was angry at God for many, many years. Just an arrogant, arrogant man. Always right, couldn't take any feedback. And later in his life, in his early 60s, he suddenly lost his sight. They have no idea why. And many people came to him years after his blindness and they found that he was tender. And he found God. And his whole demeanor had changed. Even though he was blind, if anyone, if anyone had a, a case against God, it would be this man now. And they asked him, he said, why aren't you angry at God? And he said, I was so arrogant and so self-centered that it took blindness to help me see To see how I lived my life. And now that I was dependent upon other people. I saw how people served me. It was my blindness. That helped me see my brokenness. God is willing to risk his reputation. Risk his fame. To keep us. From losing ourselves. To our fame. And our reputation. David Bowie's song. Wrestles with this very question. How much are you and I addicted to ourselves and addicted to our fame? <laughs> you and I are so much more than our reputation and our fame. We're so much more than just a number or a number of houses or a number of savings account, whatever that number is and I just want to give you a moment maybe, to do what I did at the hot tub and just ask for forgiveness whether you can only see a sliver of it or you've seen a big chunk of it today that sense of odeness that sense of inability to be humble let's pray together we'll call it a day Father maybe you want to say God help me see I choose to humble myself because I don't want to be humbled. Forgive me of my owedness. Forgive me of not looking up. Forgive me for taking credit for the gifts and talents and very life that you've given me. Forgive me and teach me how to live a life of humility where it's not about me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Go and be humble, and we will see you next week as we continue our series on self-portraits.